This episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by the new thriller Beirut from the writer of the Bourne trilogy. Set in 1982, John Hamm plays a former U.S. diplomat sent to negotiate the release of a kidnapped CIA operative. Entertainment Weekly raves Beirut is a taut spy thriller. It's purely entertaining, a must-see. John Hamm has fully arrived on the big screen and a treat for fans of Serious Fair. Also starring Rosamund Pike, Beirut, now playing in theaters. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large out in LA. And and I was thinking about how we're we're a couple weeks away from our 200th episode, and we spend a lot of the year talking about Oscars and award season. But I was remembering how when we first started, our first conversation was actually about Cannes because we had just come out of Cannes, and I really feel like even more than award season itself. Can is just a real flashpoint for us because it is it, it, whether or not the lineup is as exciting in its particulars as it is in terms of the hype. It ends up being such a, an entry point for talking about so many issues related to movies as both an art form and an industry on an international level. This year was no exception. I don't know about you, but over on the East Coast, we got up at the crack of dawn, actually a few minutes before the crack of dawn, to, to watch the press conference where. Uh, Thierry Frameau, bleary-eyed, announced uh, the the competition or or what what we have so far. It seems like they may add some films with 17 and there may be as many as 21 or so. But what I was thinking about is, so we're going to talk a bit about this. There's been all this stuff going on this past week with Netflix and Cannes and Netflix uh, is not does not qualify for competition as can because uh, those films have to have distribution in France and then Netflix said, well, we're just going to pull all of our films from can even things like Orson Welles' restoration that they were going to release. So what, what I think is really interesting, and I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, because you've been going to Cannes longer than I have, is you know just how much does a, a quote-unquote controversy like this matter to people who just like movies and generally just watch movies when they come out in theaters or wind up on Netflix? The, the thing about the thing about can is that it it really reveals where the world is. And I think that the uh, flashpoint with, with Netflix is, is showing us that, that these debates, I mean, I just on Twitter alone today, the, you know, the range of responses to this, there are people who believe that, that Netflix exists, you know, to destroy uh, theater going as, as, as a practice. And, and there are people who think that, that because of that, it's sort of the big, bad, horrible Netflix. There are people who believe that Netflix buries everything that, that shows up there, um, you know, and, and doesn't allow movies to see the, the light of day in some kind of way. There, it's almost as if there's an evil algorithm you yeah, know, that's, that's determining, you know, what we see. And, and then there are filmmakers, as you, you did a story today. We had a lot of great content on the site today, by the way, everyone, just in terms of, you know, the Orson Welles controversy, whether or not Lars von Trier is going to come to the festival and why he was thrown out in, in in the first place, you know, the fact that the Orson Welles daughter is fighting, you know, to have Net, um, Netflix change its mind and, and, and show the movie, because, of course, that's the one where we really do see serious collateral damage at the festival. But these raging debates are so indicative of a world where in France, 
you have 36 months of an exclusive theatrical window, which is unheard of anywhere else in the world. And people have always envied France for this very sophisticated system that feeds revenue back into the system for filmmakers and for movies to get made. And, and it's all very enclosed. Um, if anything, uh, I suspect, uh, but, you know, to bring up a whole other subject in America, you know, there's some version of that, that where the theater owners and the rest of the industry have to sort of get together and figure out what the right model is, you know, whether it's movie pass or, or anything else. Um, we're not there yet either. Okay. Nobody's there yeah, yet. I, exactly. It's, it's almost too easy for people to pinpoint uh, these two characters choose a side and have a very extreme reaction. So either Netflix is killing movie theaters or Can is not willing to evolve with the changing times. The reality is so much more granular than that. And also, I mean, everybody who says they want to see theaters survive watches things at home. And everybody who watches things at home who cares about movies has some sort of vested interest in theatrical because of what it represents in terms of the art of cinema. I think that they can coexist. And what happened here was that there were a series, I think, of miscalculations and things that blew up and went public. An interview that about that, that kicked up the Netflix controversy again that made this company that's protecting its corporate brand or whatever feel like, well, we are not going to, we don't stand to benefit from being here. It only makes us look bad. Why spend the money and the time to even be there. But I think it's, it is fascinating because even if you're just somebody who at the end of the day doesn't get to permeate that bubble, you're going you're gonna to wonder, how is that Alfonso Cuaron film? And now you won't know out of the can buzz because it's not going to get that can boost. Or if you're a genre fan, you want to know about the Jeremy Saulnier film. So it's just a, 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 it's a really good platform for framing it, conversations about yeah, movies. And it's yeah. just they're, so they're not really getting it. Yeah, yeah. So what's yeah, exactly. So what's interesting, I feel like the Orson Welles movie loses, I think the Al Alfonso Cuaron, which presumably is the unmentioned title that was in the competition I think that they wanted. Yeah. We've, yeah, we, we, confirmed. We, yeah. He didn't he didn't say it at the press conference. No. Um it's getting but, out but, there. But but it had to be. And and of course, um, maybe Alfonso Cuaron would have liked to have had his auteur status, uh, you know, reaffirmed. Who doesn't? Right. Competition at Cannes and walking up the red carpet and having the guy at the top of the stairs say, L'auteur! Alfonso Cuaron! You know, whatever. But he can go to Venice. He can go to Telluride. He can go to Toronto. A lot of movies that aren't in the festival, and you've made a long list of them, um, whether they weren't finished or whether they were rejected or not given competition slots or whatever, a lot of those movies are going to wind up in the fall conversation and we'll end up seeing them then. But I have to say, I wonder, I mean, he made this big fuss about changing the way that the movies are being um, uh, screened for the press so that it's at the same time, so that there won't be any negative stuff breaking before the the actual movie. I think he had a tough time getting some of the movies he wanted. I think he that's one of the reasons they made this change. It's very hard to make a business case for Cannes. You hear stories from filmmakers who get invited and then a distributor who says, well, we don't necessarily need this and there's no way to see eye to eye on that because you can't put a sort of market value on the prestige factor and yet at the same time it can be very beneficial there especially for filmmakers who say play in uncertain regard where you could be the discovery of the festival you know there's a lot of first-time filmmakers in uncertain regard this year and that is a major problem you could also get buried 
But there's a strong argument to be made that Cannes actually is a Discovery Festival because there are way fewer movies than a lot of other places, and the prestige factor is just you can't replicate that anywhere else. But then on, on the competition front, it's also very interesting because the idea of competing for the Palme d'Or is a really exciting drama in the context of Cannes, but it evaporates as soon as it's over. Like, well, Nuri that's B the thing. Let's talk. <laughs> let's let's just go through this. Let's talk Turkey. Which of yeah, these I was going to say that. Which of these movies are actually going to show up, uh, are actually going to be seen by the people listening to this podcast? Well, that's the thing. Which, yeah, exactly. Because Winter Sleep won the Palme d'Or a couple years ago. It was a three-hour-plus Turkish film from Nuri Bilgit Ceylon. <laughs> I'm a big Ceylon fan. I've, I've been watching his stuff for years. He's very beautiful. And he's style. not in. He's one of the ones and, who didn't get yeah, in. Yeah, he wasn't even in this year. But it, but when that film won, won the Palme d'Or, it did, it did zilch for it. However, you could argue that something like Louis the Warmest Color, which was a very controversial film. Spielberg was the head of the jury. That made a big difference for the life of that film because of the conversation that was kicked up about it. You could argue that a pitch up on Weir Sathakal, who was a I festival favorite. I knew you'd favorite. get that in somewhere. <laughs> because I, it's if relevant. you didn't, by the end of the podcast, I was going to make you say it's his name. It's not a strategy. It's just a reality <laughs> that, that, that a pitch up on Weir Sathakal is worth talking about. <laughs> he also, by the way, co-directed co uh, an anthology film in this year's <laughs> festival, so we're going to talk a lot about him at some point. But but I will say that having Tim Burton acknowledge the vision of this filmmaker at Cannes and give it a Palme d'Or also helped establish that filmmaker in a big way. So no, we no, can no, make no. something That's what obscure. it's about. It's about the auteurs. Yeah. It's all about the auteurs. It can have an effect. But let's one, one point I want to make though is that as Paul, I mean, we're all right. So the two of the films that are actually going to turn up that happen to be American, obviously, it was very interesting to hear. Um, we're going to see Spike Lee returning for the first time in 27 years since Jungle Fever so cool. with Black Klansmen. And I cannot wait to see this about a guy who infiltrates the Klan in 1979. I mean, this seems so perfect for Spike Lee. And three Ks and, uh, in that title, better get used to it. We've already had a few people complaining that we're spelling it wrong. It's, it's yeah, three exactly. Ks, one word. And then we have Focus Features is going to be releasing that, so that seems like a good home, a good mount, you know, a good launch for the, for this movie. And then, and I can't wait to see Spike again. I mean, you know, he, he he since Do the Right Thing, he's been at you know, but it's been a while. And then you have um, the, the Mitchell movie, which is a twenty four, which is under the Silver Lake and Andrew Garfield, and it's presumably a horror movie. Um, and I can't. And apparently, this guy, <laughs> this guy. Guy, um, who who is in both Black Klansman and Under the Silver Lake, Topher Grace. He's in yeah. both movies. I mean, it, it is kind of fun. I don't even know how to parse that. Like, is he this year's Nicole Kidman or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's it well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, they're such different movies, but those are the two American films competing for the palm. So and, there will be something we, to extract And it's really that. great to see Mitchell get up there and to, into the actual competition, even if it's the slot that Quaron was going to have. Well, well and it's, I, this is going to be a movie to watch from a conversation standpoint because, as, as Fromo pointed out, it's two and a half hours long. Uh, it's not, a, I, as far as I can tell, a horror movie, certainly not for the people who saw It Follows and Expect a kind of expressionistic horror movie. It seems to be more of a kind of 
labyrinthian kafka-esque uh, la noir of sorts but a very long one with a lot of disparate elements so putting that into the chaotic context of can and all the insta reactions that come out of there it's going to be an interesting challenge but it could also increase this guy's profile in a way that would never have been possible anywhere else i loved uh, both of his other films which both played critics week so can has been on top of this guy from the beginning, uh, Myth of the American Sleepover and It Follows are both terrific movies. This guy's a talented guy, so There's I'm excited there. to see There's this. No question yeah. about it. And, and Spike's filming is produced by Jordan Peele's company, Monkey Paw, so that's a great merging of the minds of sorts. So, and and so, just you know, having and then the it, other one we're interested in, of course, which is the Amazon title, is the Pavel Palikowski movie Cold War, which is set in. 50s Europe. It's a romance. And uh, of course, this is the guy who did Ida. So I'm very excited to see oh, that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a very, very interesting filmmaker, very visually driven, a lot of anticipation there. So, you know, in terms of the people who we're aware of, there, there's from you know, previous films they, they've had at festivals, I think that sums it up really nicely. It's also, I think, notable to look at what we thought seemed pretty likely that hasn't happened yet. By this time next week when we record, there could be new additions. I mean, usually there is about, there are about 21 films or so. and it's, So there are only uh, 17 so only far? There's only 17 in competition so far. They really, they, they leave themselves open to changes. I mean, if, if Netflix, I think if Netflix decided to make that Wells film available again, they would just put it right into an out-of-competition no slot. Question. No question about it. They keep saying it. they're still talking. Anything's possible. I, before we move on to the snubs, though, I, I, one I forgot to mention that I'm really excited about in competition is Jafar Panahi's new film because Panahi is this you know, Iranian filmmaker who has been living to some degree under house arrest, but really is that he can't leave the country and he was banned from making films for 20 years and he's continually violated that ban with some really interesting films. Like, um, this is not a film which was snuck into to a can in, in, a, in a USB drive hidden in a pastry or something like that. A really cool film shot in his house, and then he made Taxi, which won the Golden Bear at uh, Berlin, and that was shot entirely within the confines of a taxi. But, but he's, he's got an interesting style where he has an experimental approach, but his, his films are very accessible and very funny, interesting characters. And uh, this is the first time he's been in competition at Cannes. So the Cannes Film Festival is going to try to get him there. Who knows how much pressure they can exert on the Iranian government, but that that's one I think is really exciting because he's also a great filmmaker, so there are multiple reasons to be There's behind a, this effort. Right, of course. I hope they can get him. There's a second film uh, that comes from named Le, Leto, Leto, which is a Russian film from a guy named Kirill Serebrenikov, who directed something called The Student, and uh, this weekend, I was up in San Francisco, and Paul Schrader was raving about The Student. And here's the follow-up movie, which is in uh, competition at Cannes. And again, he's under house arrest. He's being accused of embezzling funds. And uh, so there's some, you know, the people are saying it's a political uh, thing. So whether he'll be allowed to come uh, is another question mark. Uh, it's about the Leningrad rock scene. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing that one yeah, as well. I mean, hopefully, if if uh, Can is going to put some effort into getting one filmmaker in from one no, they regime, they they, yeah, yeah. They, they better focus on both. But uh, yeah, so 
Let's and then talk about an Vendors movie. That is true. We knew the, about that film, um, that was, which uh, I, I'm hoping. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. For Mo says, uh, "This is the one called a man, Pope Francis, a man of his world, and it's a documentary. And we like Vendors when he's in documentary mode, uh, especially in these um, days, especially the guy yeah. Pina, you know Pina, you know uh, Buena Vista Social Salt of the Club. Earth." He's, He's very good at documentaries. And so this one um, is in a special screening and, and it's focus features. And I was amused that, that Fribo said that the Pope would not be showing up on the red carpet for he this. He should have used it to make a selfie <laughs> joke, obviously. But who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at another... another uh... They talked about that for like 20 minutes. Oh I want to kill who cares, guys? The one who got up at two in the morning. My God. Yeah, seriously. So let's talk about the snubs because this is this is actually really fascinating. Because speaking of the two in the morning thing, there are really, I mean, a lot of times this kind of drama gets played up in the media, but there are really films that show up until the last minute, or films that have shown and been invited and aren't sure whether they can, you know, meet the deadline to to, to lock picture in time or to. Uh, to basically get the investment necessary. There's so much back and forth that goes on. So even so with... So clearly they were fighting until the wee hours of yeah, the morning because, because about he, Lars von Trier. Well, let, but not just that. I think there's, so, there's, there's several films. But let, well, we can start with that one because I think that one is still a drama that's playing out as we're talking about it. Because, Lars, we were both there that year in 2011 when Melancholia played and uh, Lars said this stupid thing about Nazis... And, uh, and I, am deemed, a, uh, I am a Nazi. He said so. Basically, well, it, it was kept a whole going. family it was so thing. So awkward. It was such that an he awkward was talking thing. about. Yeah, but, so but he, I don't know. if you go back and look at what really happened, and you see how it happened, and of course he was he apologized up the yin yang for being really stupid and provocative in a stupid way. But he's been banned ever since. But unfortunately for him, I think the Me Too climate is not helping him either right well, you now. You have to remember there's a couple of things. This is what from, I, I interviewed from O that year. And, and he said something really specific in the interview, not to me, but to filmmakers. He said, filmmakers have to remember that Can has a big ego. And you could tell it wasn't like he was saying this just on behalf of himself. I mean, people talk so, so much about this one guy because he comes to embody this whole thing. You have to remember that there's a board of directors on this festival that includes all these representatives of, of French film culture. And, 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 and film in France has such a different kind of currency. It's tied in with so many different aspects of life and be, even just being a French citizen almost. And there are laws tied to the way that films exist in French society and so I think it's really interesting because what happened here was a very extreme violation that that has it trickles down into the system in more sophisticated ways so to just have Lars back I can see how some people would feel like after everything they went through to just just undo that without something else I don't know what it is a, a statement signed in blood saying he won't say anything offensive seems like it would be really hard to pull off for this complex institution well, and he's I not going to do that that that's so. one thing that's when he is who he is and he wouldn't do a press conference anyway but but the and I'm sure they wouldn't mind as Terrence yeah, Malick doesn't do that one out right but but in the case of in this case also you know the the Zentropa uh, production company in Denmark is, has 
you know, been been accused of sexual harassment, and the guy who was the co-founder had to had to step down, the CEO, um, and and so and he's been accused of of sexually harassing Bjork on the set of Dancer in the Dark, which won the Balm d'Or, you know, and it just feels like they at this point in time, uh, I my guess is that is it isn't worth it to them. It's a huge liability on on all, on all sides. I mean, the House of Jack build looks pretty interesting. Still, it's still a compelling filmmaker but it's i don't know i just i just it's really hard to envision i mean look there's there's no woody allen this year was that a can call was it an amazon call or both we don't, we don't know we don't know there's no roman polanski not that his next not that he has be, anything but 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 it, it, when you think about it i mean it's sort of like there there aren't a ton as far as we know of huge li- liability so there is a, an element of playing it safe this time it's like pulling teeth in the last few years to, to, to kind of see any kind of political correctness with this festival. Just, uh, I mean, when you think about it, like the whole thing with the, the, not the selfies on the red carpet is pretty innocuous compared to the year in which uh, you had the wife of a, of a filmmaker with a film and competition couldn't get in because she wasn't wearing heels at the palais, you know, like they're, they're, they're undoing the paradoxes and the kind of, you know, they retro- say that they're evolving. Stuff. They say they're evolving, but I, I will say this. Cannes is the granddaddy of all film festivals. Oh, my God. What is that? Um, Cannes is the uh, granddaddy of all film festivals, and they are also, uh, in fact, really old-fashioned. Let's yeah. just be it's honest just, about and, that. And, and, it just and takes France time. itself, France itself is very rigid and old-fashioned. The point I'm trying to make is uh, to say— From their exhibition to their— yeah. To, I, I know, who, you know, saying. their attitudes about women. But I mean, I agree. I agree. But I think I think they are what we're seeing is they are trying to change. And the only way that change is going to take place is with very awkward. Yeah, but let's. I mean, okay, let's talk about the women. They, there are still three women in competition, just like last year. It's really uh, three films. And, and I, I do want to see the Alice Robacher. I liked her last film, The Wonders. I do want to see the Nadine Labaki. I liked her last film. Where do we go from here? The new woman, Eva Husson. It looks really cool. Her film, I, French film, first time filmmaker. I'm curious, but it, it's still, you know, it's one, you know, all he says, all he, Primo ever says is, oh, we don't look at it from the point of view of who did it. It's just the quality. It's not about the country. It's not about the sex. It's just whether it's a good film, whether it's an artist. You know, um, we don't look at sex. We look at artists. And yeah, so, forth. I mean, the thing is, I think on some level he's not totally lying, and the reason why is not because, I mean, I. I I think there's that, so many women in certain regard. There's, there's Again. plenty of. I think there's a disconnect in terms of how that statement is being phrased and how the programming process breaks down. To assume that this festival is all programmed by that one guy we keep talking about is is to to think impractically, right? There no, is a programming. The real team, truth hang on, is, hang on, hang on. The, the the real truth is there's a programming. There's a selection team, and and that and the the people who are who are putting things in an uncertain regard, who are seeing a broader range of movies, don't always necessarily have the sway to push movies into competition. That there is some kind of systematic disconnect in the way that discoveries are being made for really high caliber movies and how those movies are being slotted that is not allowing the competition to evolve adequately. That's there what are I more think. 
first-time filmmakers than usual this year, which is to their credit, and I applaud that. Some of them are women, are women. but I will also say that there are politics that play, and, and the question of who, who can walk the red carpet, and what star that's is going too. to be available. And, and that's an industry and issue, too. You've, you've got Penelope Cruz and, and Javier Bardem for opening night. This is good. Everybody knows. Um, but they, they need that, too. And so um, it's, it's fascinating, all the different politics that, that are brought to bear. By the way, I read an article, just this is very tangential, but I thought it was interesting, that Wild Bunch, which is one of their big suppliers, which is one of the big, big production sales companies in France, who are behind a lot of movies that we, that we like, um, that they are putting a lot of movies out on their own uh, Netflixy platform ahead of release. In other words, even in France, there are people bucking the system, of and not you know. Of course, so I mean the, the paradoxes here go deep. It's not a secret, really. If you actually look at these things, everyone's trying to keep up certain sorts of appearances, as it were, without actually looking at the reality of, of how things are happening. I mean, I also think there is perhaps some promise in seeing. An, an industry that is more responsive to giving women filmmakers the right kind of resources to make movies the same way that men have been making movies for the for you know a century plus to the extent that hopefully and I know that this is partly or to a large degree on can but hopefully as we see more opportunities for women filmmakers coming through the pipeline this itself will start to have a more direct effect on can it's just clearly there there is still some kind of a disconnect happening here because we're seeing other festivals committing like hot dogs later this month committed to, to gender parity now that's a documentary festival but which is not that, such a big deal no it but, already, but but it already point exists seeing that okay. it, you, there is a direct line though because if if as fest more festivals start thinking in these terms inevitably something is going to it has to affect can because can does little by little start to reflect the state of movies today. But it, they're it, still dragging their feet. And and I think, you know, you, it's very easy to put Kate Blanchett uh, in, in front of a jury or, or put a woman in charge of, of or such a regard jury. It's very easy to say, oh, we have plenty of women on the on the jury. You know, it's not the same thing as, as reflecting uh, what's really going. There are lots of women making films. And there are lots of women making films in France. The question is which mil which filmmakers are being deemed worthy of auteur status, and it also has to do with which institutions are fighting for them. That's part of it. It's a question of who's representing them and how much clout they have. And the other question, uh, the other thing I was going to say is, by the way, and I did appreciate him quoting Jessica Chastain, and who was on the jury last year and who made some very strong statements um, at the jury press conference at the end of the festival about understanding the difference between the male gaze and the female gaze. And, and I think that, Cherry, you're right, that he is learning. He is starting to try to get his consciousness And it's not raised, just him. But it's I mean, institutional. It's not just him. I understand. Yeah. It's huge. All right. The other thing is that there are more movies that are still going to be announced, as you said before. Last year at this time, we did not know that the Florida Project, the Square, the Square, which won the Palme d'Or, was a late edition. Right. The artist they was a late edition. Late a few years, yeah, yeah. All kinds of stuff. One film that I, I before we go, I think it's important to acknowledge. Um, setting aside the the female filmmaker question, is is uh, is a guy who you would assume would be a no brainer here, and that's Terry Gilliam because. Man Who Kill, Killed Don Quixote has been this 
hilariously prolonged curse production for literally decades. I mean, if you haven't seen the documentary about this loss in La Mancha, it's worth checking out when he was going to do this thing with Johnny Depp. And now he's actually made the thing with Amazon, and yet the, er the producer of an earlier version of it has been basically suing him to say that this guy has the right to approve the movie before it can be shown somewhere. So that is still playing out. It, and, and it seems Did like you look at the trailer, it. though? I don't. I, I, I think it would be very unlikely for Cannes to pretend that they would be showing this movie and actually not like it. I, 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 would, I would be Wait shocked a minute. if they... They got killed for showing Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which, by the way, stars Benicio That's Benicio a great Pifaro, friggin' movie, though. Who's, who's the head of another jury. Um, but I... I what? Did you just say that was a great movie? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Oh, my God. One of the worst movies ever made. I love made. that movie. It's so wild and fun. Uh, and it's coming up on a 20-year anniversary. It's like you, it's like you uh, were communing yeah, yeah, yeah. with it. I think Cannes is maybe a weird platform for that. But, but Gilliam, Gilliam is part of the auteurs club. And by a Cannes logic... He is, but he should... By Cannes logic... They should. I think that they recognize the can logic makes them book the wrong films a lot of the time, and there are fewer of the old guard sort of Duriger auteurs this year than usual. Well, from your mouth, a good to, thing. from your mouth to the Palais years, I guess. But but I do think that there are ways to do. I mean, if Gilliam wanted to go to Cannes and they could get him in an out of competition slot or something like that, it would it, it could happen, and even. You know, cab the cabinet or whatever that movie was that he made after the Heath Ledger died while they were making it. You know, it wasn't. I liked a, that one. It, it wasn't, that one was yeah, okay. It was just a couple of years ago, but it, it wasn't a great movie. But I, it wasn't an embarrassment that it was there. He's continued to be an interesting filmmaker who defies expectations. Tideland, I thought, was very interesting. Imaginary of Doctor. I'm always optimistic. Was I'm always optimistic. Zero the, Theorem the, wasn't the terrible. Truth. The truth is know. that 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 trailer looks really dangerous. Well, to that, me. <laughs> but again, there could be so many factors there. Was is it is it done? I mean, everything about this movie is dangerous. That what that's what makes me want to see it. You know, I embrace that sort of thing. Who knows? In any case, next week we hopefully will have more updates about all this stuff. I mean, Fromo says the door's still open for Netflix, so anything could could develop on that front. Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath, but. Uh, Given that it is one, that weird time of the year where among the new releases next week are uh, Rampage, I suppose we should probably try to stick to canned stuff. But if, if you want to watch Dwayne Johnson roll around with a gorilla so we can chat about that, I'm down too. No, thank you. <laughs> All right, have a good weekend, Dan. I'll talk to you soon. You too, Eric. Bye.